Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. We've got a jam-packed show to say the least today as we continue, obviously, our coverage of Russia's brutal and illegal and unjustified invasion of Ukraine. Many of you, of course, have been seeing some absolutely horrific scenes coming from Ukraine as uh, huge numbers of civilians uh, have died in the onslaught, not least on major urban cities. Now, this war has been going on for about over three weeks. If Russia's aim was a sudden capitulation of Ukraine or uh, regime change, as it were, then that has clearly failed pretty abysmally. But nonetheless, uh, it does seem that an onslaught on Kiev, Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, is impending. We've seen the sorts of destruction Russia's unleashed on other urban centres, I'm afraid if anyone who's looked at what Putin unleashed in Syria, these are horrifying, but not necessarily surprising. Um, now, later on the show, we're going to talk again to Professor Paul Rogers, who's going to give us again his expert analysis of exactly what's happening on the ground. It's important we have someone like Paul because the fog of war does apply in circumstances like this. I think we've all got the gist of the fact that Russia's invasion has not gone to plan, according to Putin's initial war aims. But nonetheless, I think it's important that we actually assess what's happening. There have been, of course, Western intelligence briefing that chemical weapons could be used in Ukraine. Now, many people, understandably, given the the history of Western intelligence, might be sceptical about some of those claims. But nonetheless, it has to be said, a lot of what those reports previously suggested about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which were treated somewhat sceptically, proved to be true. So it is worth talking about whether that's possible. We're talking later to Adam Bienkov as well uh, about the possibility of, uh, well, about the links between Boris Johnson and the media mogul Yevgeny Lebedev. Uh, and later on, we're talking to Jeeva Sunni about the executions that have taken place in Saudi Arabia. It's somewhat linked because the West is going cap in hand to Saudi Arabia for oil, uh, given the onslaught Russia has unleashed against Ukraine. So what does that mean in terms of human rights abuses? there. But first, we're very honoured to bring in the brilliant author, uh, Tom Burgess, uh, Financial Times, but the author of Kleptopia. Can I say, I can't, I'm not sure I can say your, I, can, I, I was stressing about saying your name right, and now I can't pronounce your book. Don't worry, Kleptopia is how I say it. Kleptopia, easy, easy. <laughs> What's my problem? Um, it's great to have you. Now, we're, you've got kids' uh, responsibilities to juggle, so I don't, I don't want to take you for too long. No, no, as long as you like, just that they may, they have strong views on these matters and you may hear them. It's good to have them input. Always welcome. As much input as possible. Tom, firstly, just explain, you were involved in, let's say, a legal wrangle, which was extremely high profile. Can you just tell us, involved in your book, what happened? Right, yeah. So so I, I wrote this book, Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. That was five years of work. I went back to the places where I'd been a correspondent in Africa. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then I spent some time in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and all over the place, really. 
tracking the rise of kleptocracy, so rule through corruption, the rule of the few by corruption, and as I found, underpinned by violence and fear. So this is, you know, how, how Robert Mugabe rules. It's how Nazarbayev rules in um, Kazakhstan. It's how the House of Saud rules in Saudi Arabia. Sadly, a great deal of the world uh, is under the control of kleptocracy. And, and for me, this is the great struggle of our times between kleptocracy and democracy. Putin is obviously one of the king kleptocrats. So anyway, I wrote this book and I wrote it as a sort of piece of narrative nonfiction for interwoven stories, a kind of a British banker, American gangster, Canadian lawyer, and an oligarch from the former Soviet Union. And, um, and there we go, the book came out in, in 2020. And then a London registered company called ENRC Limited, uh, which is controlled by, um, well, it was controlled by three of the oligarchs mentioned in the book, and then one of them um, has recently died, so it's now controlled by two of them, um, sued me and my publisher for defamation. And they said that the the book they said that I had written that this company, this holding company in London, had murdered three people who were potential witnesses in um, a corruption investigation. Uh, now, I the, the book didn't say that. And the judge found that the book didn't say that. What, what was extraordinary a couple of weeks ago was that, you know, we've, we've what, what, we needed two years on now from when the book came out. And um, we've been battling, battling, battling with a fantastic legal team and with, with HarperCollins, the publishers behind it. Um, but it came to court and it took, you know, less than a day for the judge to throw it out. But um, I think the, there are a few important points here. One, one of the big ones is that, you know, I'm really lucky to have this support. Um, you know, you, you work for a, a gutsy newspaper too. I work for, I, I write books for a gutsy um, publisher, also work for a gutsy newspaper, but the vast majority of this work is done by these reputation, so-called reputation management law firms uh, who work for the rich and powerful, for oligarchs, for kleptocrats, um, is it, it, completely unseen, right? They have a huge influence on the public record on what on what we get to read and get to hear. Um, and these firms, based in London, very few people have ever heard their names. This is the kind of Carter Rocks and um, Shillings and so on. But they wield enormous influence over the public record. Um, and my case, and and, and uh, the one over my friend Catherine Belton's brilliant book, Putin's People, which was similar in some ways, that these, I hope, have created some momentum for reform now. And there's, there's quite encouraging um, cross-party interest in doing something about this because we've now awoken to the terrible danger of dirty money, our complicity in transnational corruption that feeds and fattens regimes like Putin's. Um, and, and and also the way that we have been absorbing this money from kleptocracies into our own society, into our political system, legal system, into our universities, into our cultural system for many, many years. And we're realizing now that it wasn't free. It was, it had a, it has a corrupting influence. And, we're, we're awakening to this and we're thinking, my God, we better go and find this money. Well, this is a job for our journalists. And what do we discover? That there's a huge obstacle to reporting on these matters. And it's not, um, we're not in the same position as our colleagues in Russia who get bumped off for trying to do this. We're not uh, so far anyway subject to sort of ruinous cyber attacks or something like that. No, the, the, the biggest obstacle, the biggest chill on this investigative work is is law firms based in London. If we've got a little clip here, actually, of 
your response when you won that legal battle. Let's just see. Available <laughs> in all good bookstores. <laughs> How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling delighted, especially on behalf of the absolutely courageous sources who helped me write this book, which is about what I think is the most dangerous threat today to our freedom, which is the rise of cryptocracy. And I'm, I'm very pleased with this attempt to censor this book has failed. I mean, it, I'm yeah, sorry. That's it, say, that's my, I, it looks like I'm announcing kind of like an engagement. That's my that's my uh, my amazing <laughs> publisher, HarperCollins, Arabella Pike. Uh, that is a great. It's the, the best possible advert you could have got for the book. So it's not all bad. Uh, my Wi-Fi is being a bit dodgy, so I'm just going to focus on you. We're just going to focus on you for a little bit while we resolve that. Um, okay. So, in terms of the measures the government are taking against oligarchs, are they doing enough? And if not, why do you think? Well, no, they're not. But I think I think let's try and. Let's try and step one step back and look at this. Um, as I said there on the steps of the High Court, the kleptocracy is, a, is, is the number one threat to democracy. It's spreading, okay? And the, the kleptocrats of the world are forming alliances. I'm thinking of Russia, China, um, but also Venezuela, Iran. All these regimes with different masks, ultimately just about enriching the powerful few. Donald Trump is in this category as well. Um, uh, look at a regime like Orbán's in Hungary. Uh, a lot of the time, there's a kind of nationalist front to this, but underneath, it's just theft. Now, um, are we saying that we've awoken to the threat of this and therefore we want to sh close off, defend our economies from this poisonous, dirty money? If so, we're getting nowhere close to it because how? Uh, there were, in the economic crime bill last week, there are some, there are some helpful things. There are some uh, things that will, at the edges, make it easier for law enforcement agencies to go after corruption and to try to find and confiscate dirty money. But if, if that is us kind of quite ostentatiously slamming the front door shut, we're leaving the back door open with a big sign saying, you might just want to try around here, because we, con we continue to allow this fundamental thing. We continue to allow financial secrecy, which no one's ever voted for. It's never been in anyone's manifesto. It's just this monstrous evolution of the global financial system where you can participate in the economy in the economy in disguise i mean if you or i Owen, were to try to open a bank account without giving our name you can imagine how far we get with that but if you're powerful enough you can buy property in central london or so on without your name on it now there's a huge complicated architecture that lets that happen but ultimately it's very simple it's we that we permit this secrecy and actually it's a sort of baffling idea when you think about it for more than a minute as to why this is permitted and how if you were a kleptocrat in the kremlin trying to design a global system that would let you loot your country and park it in the west that's mm -hmm. the one thing you'd want and we continue to permit that now at the same time we're putting a few a few oligarchs on a few lists um i think most people would say that's probably welcome and necessary but the uk's history of enforcing sanctions there's quite a lot of people under sanctions in the uk already which demonstrates how much dirty money comes here but we're, we're pathetically bad at enforcing it uh, and also um how much influence can this really have on 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 putin right we have fed his kind of petro state for so long um that, that he has been able to establish real control over the oligarchy. In fact, he's sidelined a lot of the old oligarchs uh, and, and created new ones who are much more personally tied to him and linked to the security forces and so on. Um, so I'm, a, I'm afraid I feel that the, despite all the noise, the, 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 the likelihood that the, chain, the moves we've seen so far from the government will A, cause a change of course from Putin and B, 
seriously start to address London's shameful role as the global capital of dirty money, I, I, I don't think that's that's what they're going to achieve. I mean, fundamentally, isn't the problem? This is structural. This is the economic model which has been nurtured in this country for a very long time. Yeah, I think some of it's happened by mistake, but some of it has been nurtured. I think. I, I think there's been this. Um, if you like, sometimes called market fundamentalism, this idea, essentially the idea that um, all money is good money. And we, at the same time, the the parts of the British Empire that are still connected to the UK, essentially still under UK control. So this is places, mainly Caribbean islands, like the British Virgin Islands and the Cayman Islands, the Channel Islands, um, Gibraltar. At the end of empire, they were given a new purpose in the global economy which is essentially as manufacturers of corporate secrecy so you can go to each one of them or you can send your teams of lawyers or your agents to to each of these places if you are let's say the son of a kazakh dictator um and there you can put you can you can put together layer upon layer of camouflage essentially creating a corporate person with so many fronts layer and layers of camouflage to it that that the true human being behind that is completely invisible. Uh, and that's that's the what's sometimes called the sort of City of London secrecy network. And it churns out the secrecy that allows trillions upon trillions of dollars, massive amounts of money, way more money than, than the value of most economies, um, to move through the world incognito. Now, the, the, the real cost of that is extraordinary. I mean, to, to give you an example, you know, the way that Robert Mugabe carried on in power in 2008 when he was about to be removed. Uh, this is one of the episodes I write about in the book. You know, he made the money to brutalise the opposition and steal that election through a series of um, mining deals, really just one mining deal to do with a platinum mine, that but that involved um, secretive companies all over the world, but specifically um, corporations registered the London Stock Exchange, some oligarchs from Central Asia, a, a Wall Street hedge fund, and a Southern African kind of mining magnate. And these are the kind of networks that, that emerge. And the UK's business model appears to be, if you can, if you can put a, a vaguely plausible business face on this, if you can, if you can marshal some sort of MBA goggly goop and put it in a, a corporate statement to the city, then we'll buy that, you know, this is the thing about the sanctions, right? There's very little information that's in these sanctions designations, the, the justifications that the government prints for putting oligarch A or oligarch B under sanctions. Very little information in those justifications that we didn't know um, a week ago, a month ago, that we didn't know when Putin annexed Crimea, that we didn't know when um, uh, Putin took South Ossetia, that we didn't know in some cases when he had Litvinenko murdered on the streets of London with polonium to stop him digging too much into corruption. I mean, our position in right up until two weeks ago was, yeah, we, we broadly know how this works, but we'll we'll take the money, thanks. So just finally, what if you were going to come up with the Tom Burgess Charter for clamping down on oligarchs, what would your be, big key measures that you'd, you, you would introduce like that? Well, I'd probably give it a different name. Um, but I actually think it's fantastically simple. I think that the, um, uh, I think there's just two things really. The, 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 the vast complexity of this, the, the, the smoke and mirrors of the financial system, that is 
what's meant to dazzle us and confuse us and befuddle us into thinking this is all too complicated to, to handle. This is all big, complicated uh, global capitalism that we mere mortals can't understand, so we better let them get on with it. Um, I did two things. I would, first of all, I would recognize that agencies like the National Crime Agency and the Serious Fraud Office are the front lines of our defenses of democracy against this tidal wave of kleptocratic wealth that is approaching and in some cases has, has, has already um, permeated into our economies and our politics. Uh, and I would massively increase their funding. At the moment, um, their annual, these agencies' annual budgets is equivalent to a kind of a couple of days income for the oligarchs they're up against. One. Uh, two, I, I would do something to do with what we've been talking about uh, at the moment. You know, a, a few moments ago, I, I, I remember so vividly, it was almost exactly three years before the court case. I was in quite a remote part of Kazakhstan where the security forces loyal to the ruling corrupt regime ha had opened fire on, on, uh, on a, on a trade union demonstration against corruption uh, and, and had killed a dozen people. Um, and I, I pieced together an account of that massacre and, and, I, and I spoke to people who'd been tortured in the aftermath so that they would give confessions and say that they themselves had been responsible for this violence. Now there's a direct connection between regimes that behave like this and regimes that behave like Putin's in their sort of wanton disregard for humanity. There's a direct connection between that and these regimes that are able to bleed their countries dry and then put the, the mask of corporate secrecy on and move their loot for safekeeping abroad. That is how they break the chain of accountability with their own people. That's the, now you have to remove that mask. I, I would very. I would, so the second thing I would do is I would. I would. Um, I would make it essentially impossible through legal means, regulatory means, to enter the UK economy without being a named human being. It would be that simple. You just have to cut through corporate secrecy. That's the key. Brilliant stuff, Tom. Honestly, we really, really appreciate it. Not least because you are. Not literally juggling kids, but juggling childcare responsibilities. Everyone well, do. Thanks very much. Everyone do go and get a copy of that book, which has been given a massive boost by a failed <laughs> libel action. <laughs> Oops. Uh, so do get back top of the year um, and do look up uh, Tom's work. But Tom, honestly, really, really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Owen. All the best. Take care. Take care now. Uh, brilliant stuff. Um, so uh, my connection, as you can see, is a little dodgy for some reason. Uh, I don't know what's going on there. Wi-Fi is normally fine, but it's decided today to to be rubbish. But we will persevere. We will just focus on the other guests. Their, their Wi-Fi is great. Um, before we do, before I bring in our next brilliant guest, uh, as of our housekeeping, if you're watching live, click on the YouTube link and press like and subscribe, um, and you'll get the notifications whenever we do these shows. Um, do support the show on patreon.com forward slash Simon Jones 84. You keep the show on the road. We've got another documentary impending. We're sifting through people's ideas, which they've given to us on Patreon to work out what the next documentary will be on. But there's been some fantastic ideas submitted, so thank you. And uh, do listen to us on the podcast, which is what many of you are doing anyway. Um, and we've got lots of videos to come. As I'm not going to repeat that, I'm finishing my book because I repeat that over and over again, and I'm bored of hearing myself say it. Before bringing our next guest, let's just, again, we're talking obviously about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, striking that it's not, it doesn't look like it's going to plan. 
and there's been huge amounts of resistance to the invasion. Let's just see one clip as an example. <laughs> So that's Russian troops being confronted by Ukrainian protesters, which obviously takes quite a lot of guts. Uh, let's bring in the brilliant uh, Paul Rogers, the Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies. It's great to have you again, Paul. I feel I feel guilty because you're such... We're, you're so, everyone's kind of... We're all the kind of... All of us who are obviously trying to cover this as best as possible all overly relying on your expertise. Um, but uh, I, I think anyone who's listened to you will understand why very quickly. So, Paul, we spoke yeah. to you two weeks ago, and two weeks ago, it looked as though it wasn't going very well for Russia. And the fact we're now talking about that two weeks later, Kiev has not fallen. Isn't this going actually very badly for Russia, or are we overstating that? We're slightly overstating it, but it is going badly. Yes, what is last Sunday? That was our Sunday week, fortnight ago. And that was the previous Thursday the, the war had started. Even by Saturday, things were going not quite right. And on Sunday, we had that very indicative thing from Putin where he said that essentially what he said, reading between the lines, if NATO intervenes, we will uh, use tactical nuclear weapons. That's what it amounted to, which was a firm indication that things were going badly. Since then, uh, basically, the, the Russian tactics has changed in, in three ways. One, give up the idea that they're going to take Kiev in the first 72 hours. That's basically gone. Uh, the, the second is really rely much more on firepower rather than on the troops on the ground confronting Ukraine uh, military and civilians. And I think three, uh, go for really long-range artillery and things like cruise missiles. We saw that terribly, I think, in the last 24 hours, the attack on the base in western Ukraine, long, long way, probably a couple of hundred kilometers from the nearest Russian troops on the ground, but using long-range standoff missiles. And it's a particular tactic which a few countries can do because they've got those sorts of missiles. Um, as far as the cities are concerned, they've been trying to do this whole issue of really bombing them or, or firing shells at them uh, to bring them into submission. And even that, in spite of the terrible loss of life and the destruction, is not working as they expected. So you've seen the extraordinary thing that Kharkiv, which I think is Ukraine's second largest city, has been under constant bombardment now for the best part of two weeks. Yet there are still people there who are actually protesting, even in Mariupol, which has been savagely damaged or getting protesters. And I think the clip that you showed, I think, may have been for Kherson, uh, which was another one that had been a huge uh, sort of assaults by artillery and the rest, but there was still the opposition. So it's clear that although there's terrible suffering in Ukraine, that uh, thousands of people are dying, they're basically standing put. Whereas on the Russian side, it is proving far more difficult. Morale is low, uh, apart from the few professional soldiers, the really experienced ones, the ones who've served, for example, in Syria and the rest. Uh, probably about half of the troops that are actually in Ukraine are actually young conscripts, many of them 19 or 20. And there have been so far, I mean, realistically, between three and 4,000 Russian troops killed. And that means probably about nine or 10,000 seriously injured. And that will slowly but surely have an impact within Russia. So basically, notice not gone according to plan. We're not sure what's going to happen next. But what is pretty clear is Putin remains determined. There's some slight feel of some 
sense that there might be a possibility to negotiate, but I wouldn't hold that really very strongly at the moment, I'm afraid. I mean, just put those figures in context. In Iraq, there were a total of 4,431 US combat deaths, but over a very, very long period of time. And Iraq was a bloody conflict, and it was a very violent conflict. And I suppose the other point people would make about Iraq compared to Vietnam, when I think about 55,000 US soldiers died, is there was huge improvements in medicine, and actually people who yes. would have been who would have died um, in Vietnam in similar circumstances survived because of that in Iraq. What the, I mean, you know, what we're talking about here is a surely a catastrophic loss of life by the Russian army. What does that tell us? I mean, as you say, that will filter through. There'll be lots of grieving parents in lots of different places. Um, but I mean, was this a case of the Ukrainian military being underestimated as much as the Russian military being overestimated? Uh, I think, right. Certainly the first one, even more so. I mean, all you can say is that when the Russians moved their troops, when the Russian army moved their troops into Ukraine, they were expecting basically an easy run. There's pretty good evidence that many of the troops who went into the cities were not actually from the army. They were from the paramilitary police drawn from across Russia, who are far more used to actually maintaining public order control and riot control. Uh, and many of them actually suffered very badly because they weren't prepared to meet not just very resistant civilians, but actually a competent military as well. So, yes, I think that there was a huge um, underestimate, which I don't think necessarily came from the army. I rather suspect it actually came from those people immediately around Putin. They thought they would have a relatively easy ride. They believed their own propaganda. Now, that's obviously a guess at this point, but I think that's the way it does look, I'm afraid. So in terms of Kyiv, because we've for a long time had this talk about the convoy, this huge 40 kilometer, however long medieval style convoy uh, looking to besiege Kyiv, which just seems to have got bogged down. Uh, I mean, what do you think the state of that convoy is? I mean, there were rumours about some abandoning the military convoy and essentially going AWOL into the Ukrainian countryside. What do you think the, the situation facing that convoy is, basically? It's difficult to say at the moment because we do get the satellite data from commercial companies. It usually comes a little bit late and it's more likely to be affected by cloud, whereas the American stuff, the very high-tech military stuff, has things like synthetic aperture radar, which can actually pick up more detail. Having said that, what appears to be the case, and I think there's good evidence for this, is that when that convoy went in, it was basically the one which was more or less intended to surround Kyiv. Um, for a start, it had about three days of food supply with, with all the troops. A large part of it was logistics, trucks and the rest, not just armored personnel carriers and tanks. And they were even more sort of vulnerable um, to the kind of, immediate sort of rapid interventions that well-trained Ukraine troops could do with their anti-tank guided weapons. And so there's a lot of disruption there. And then this extraordinary problem that, in fact, uh, it's long said by people who study the military history of continental wars that you don't go to try and move troops around either in spring or autumn simply because of mud. And essentially, it's clear that if those trucks had to go off the main roads into the side roads or across fields, they got bogged down. And that was happening frequently. What appears to have happened now is that bit by bit, probably over the last week or so, they've been trying to break up the convoy and move it sort of in individual groups, slowly and carefully, with a lot of difficulty and innumerable breakdowns and, and lack of fuel. 
And although it is, appears to be the case now that uh, Kiev as a city uh, probably has at least 50% uh, of the territory around it under Russian control, it may be even 60%, very large areas that aren't even under Russian control. But even then, if they were to move the troops through towards the city center to take the city and to take over the leadership of the country, that is when they would really have the problems because, well, I hate to use these terms, but basically in urban warfare, it is reckoned that if you have, say, um, a hundred professional defenders, you need 500 professional attackers to stand any chance of taking territory. It's like that. And the reality is that there are a heck of a lot of professional and amateur um, defenders in Kyiv. So this is why I think people, re people who study this in detail really worry that essentially Putin almost has no option but to go for firepower, uh, and basically almost wreck a place. It happens in warfare. It happened in part in Aleppo. I have to say it happened on the other side um, in Western Mosul, where the old city of Western Mosul, when the Americans, the French and the Iraqis were determined to take it off ISIS, it was virtually destroyed. And so it's, it's, it's a nasty feature. of There are no nice features of war. This is a particularly nasty one. And that is where we are, I think, now. Paul, you've written what I would describe as an alarming article in The Guardian uh, entitled, So Vladimir Putin's mind, chemical weapons might just seem a good idea. As I say, it's an alarming article. Yeah. Uh, the Kremlin's attempt to take the chemical weapons issue to the UN, uh, UN Security Council claimed the US and the UK might seek to deploy them as widely seen as a device that distracts from any future use by its own forces. Um, as you put it, you talk about he had this clear aim, take Kiev, terminate the government, replace it with the client regime. Obviously, that hasn't worked as he envisaged. A lightning military campaign catching NATO off guard, as you suggest, was the plan. What is the? Do you genuinely think the the odds of chemical weapons being unleashed by Putin Putin in Ukraine? I think it is still a minority odds. That they're, they're poor odds, but they are there. And the problem is, chemical weapons. Extraordinary sense. They are not hugely dangerous except in very defined circumstances. I mean, my father-in-law was in the First World War. He was in artillery, so he wasn't on the front line. He knew many people who were gassed. And even if they didn't die, they suffered for much of the rest of their lives. But that was when you actually had heavier-than-air chemicals which could be dispersed, given the right wind, wind uh, direction, over trenches. And that is when they work. Chemical weapons, by and large, are not actually valued weapons by people at war. That's the reality. But... There are two elements which are very important. If you actually have people who are in bunkers or in metros or in cellars, then in rare circumstances, that is the position where chemical weapons might work when others don't. But the real thing is chemical weapons don't work by killing people. They work by fear of them. And that's the, that's the real difference. So they're not you, you will not hu see huge loss of life from chemical weapons almost anywhere in modern warfare. But of course, for civilians, it is just a fear which actually haunts people. And this is why there is the risk, it's small but possible, that Putin may do this simply because he got no other way of almost willing people into submission. Uh, I'm not sure even that would work. And there are very big potential costs for him simply because you have this opprobrium for chemical warfare right across the world. We actually have a fully-fledged chemical weapons convention with inspectors and the rest. And I think, I don't know whether Putin is even looking at it this way, but I think the, the effect of using chemical weapons in addition to what he's already doing 
will have an even greater effect on China, uh, on uh, Russia. And I suspect maybe one of the things that actually changed, changed China's attitude to the war, and it would probably be even more suspicious of where this is going. And so there are various factors involved. I think the key thing I was trying to make in that article is that it is the fear factor that gives value to chemical weapons. In terms of Kyiv, if the convoy managed to get, I mean, we've seen them on the outskirts, haven't we, and some pretty horrific scenes of destruction and civilian loss of life. What would you expect to happen? Do you think, I mean, would we look at basically a very protracted siege going on for a very long period of time? Would we expect pretty devastating house-to-house urban warfare? Or would we expect huge Russian military firepower in order to avoid getting bogged down in kind of hand-to-hand urban conflict in house-by-house? I'm afraid, I think, if anything, it would be the latter. And again, this has been the experience in, in other occasions. And I have to say that this is the experience in Iraq. There are many occasions in Iraq where American troops who believed they were fighting a war against the instigators of 9-11, let's not forget this, who American troops basically came under sniper fire, uh, could not dislodge the sniper who might be in a high-rise, and called in strike power to destroy it, uh, even though there may have been sort of scores of civilians in the same building. And essentially, they'd seen their own people killed or terribly maimed. They thought they were fighting a just war against the instigators of 9-11, so they had the motivation. Now, the point is that in the current situation, it is different. Uh, yes, the professional Russian soldiers, the artillery people and the rest, may have the, uh, the, the, the motivation to do it. But by and large, there's a lot of evidence that the Russian military really have a very big problem with morale. And that will get worse because inevitably, if you're getting a lot of young men killed, and I mean, I take your point that you made about the numbers involved within a fortnight uh, for modern warfare are exceptional. So I think there are going to be more problems with morale. And even though I can't see any other way of the Russians actually going in and taking the city house to house, they just haven't got the forces or the capability to do it. I think they may try this, but I'm not sure that would work. So the terrible thing is this this war might just get bogged down. Again, I mentioned earlier on, what you've seen in the last 24 hours is another change of tactic, and that is using very long-range weapons, probably cruise missiles, the same sorts of things that were used in Iraq and elsewhere to attack distant bases. And it's basically, I mean, it was terrible what happened at that base, 30 or so people killed, but it was also a matter of creating fear and scaring people. We can hit anywhere in Ukraine. Uh, but when if push comes to shove, you've actually got to force uh, a country to submit. And I don't see that happening. This is why I think there's a possibility that Putin's people themselves will slowly come under more and more pressure internally, in spite of the extraordinary control they have over the media. Remember, it's up to 14,000 Russians who've now been arrested. And as you said in the introduction, some of them will be treated extremely roughly. And then you're going to get the more and more impact of the losses themselves. Remember that when Gorbachev was faced with the problem in Afghanistan in the mid-1980s, one of the factors that basically added to his decision to withdraw the Russian troops, or what was it, 88, 89, was the impact of very many angry um, mothers whose kids had been killed. You saw that if you go back through history in in the time of the, the French war against the Viet Minh. Uh, back in 1953-54, when it came to one particular incident, the loss of the 
key town of Dien Bien Phu, basically French will collapse to carry on because of the drip drip effect of the losses among their young people earlier in the war. That I think could already be starting to happen in Russia. And if it is, then that's an indication that even Putin may have to accept there has to be change or maybe some people around him. It's interesting you make that point about Russian public opinion because the polling in Russia, though it suggests large support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is much softer than previous conflicts. Um, I mean, obviously, there was overwhelming support for the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. But in this case, I think it was said about, I mean, look, polling in Russia, I don't know how reliable it can ever be, but it was about a quarter suggested they were opposed, which is, and, and the only way is down. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Because as, 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 as casualties mount. I'm just putting, so I should have said, people could put questions for using Super Chat. I forgot to mention this, but Tad Campbell asked, Will Russia edge closer and closer to triggering a response from NATO like the strike near Poland today? There were also reports that Chechen fighters have been used to stop Russian defections. What does Paul think? I think the latter is probably accurate, and I think the former may be part of, a, of an expansion against NATO. NATO basically is subject to, we want to be crude about it, nuclear background, nuclear blackmail. They are not going to go for any direct involvement with the Russian military if they can possibly avoid it. Because essentially, there is, a, uh, there is enough concern that Putin really could uh, go to the next stage. It may be wrong, but that is the implication. So I think NATO will be very cautious. The one worry in the short term is that Putin's people may be saying, well, the fact that NATO is providing all these weapons, the anti-tank guided missiles, the anti-aircraft missiles and the rest, is basically involvement in the war. And therefore, we can retaliate to that. That is a risk which I think we might see in the next week or so. I frankly doubt that NATO will go further in any way unless uh, there are attacks across the border into bases in Poland or Romania from where these supplies are coming or even supply lines across the border. Uh, but that, I think, is, is the biggest worry about a possible um, expansion, if you like, an acceleration in the war, because it is clear as far as Putin is concerned and that narrow group of people around him. If this fails, they fail. And for Putin, it's this idea of a renewed greater Russia. He doesn't have that. I mean, I think when I was on a fortnight ago, you had that brilliant guy from uh, um, St. Petersburg, Ilya, was mm -hmm. on. And if I remember rightly, he was saying there was one polling group that he reckoned in Russia, which was reasonably competent and reasonably fair. And that, if I remember, going from memory, they, they said that about 46% of those polled um, accepted that going for the Donetsk region and, uh, region and Crimea was right, uh, but at least 40% did not. And it's, it's a sort of a large proportion were dubious about the war as a whole. Uh, if you had to go back and check that again, I think that's what Elias said. So it is rather more fluid than we expect. And you still have these groups like Mazurka. Uh, they're tending to have to broadcast abroad now, but they're still going. And if you look at it, you know, look at one of those sites, they are incredibly open and honest about what is happening. And some Russians are getting through to that. And that is getting through as well. And then finally, very quickly, of course, what is it? About three million Ukrainians in Russia itself and a lot of families interconnected. Now, some of the Ukrainians in Russia are accepting the propaganda, but by no means all. And of course, there is communication, ordinary telephone communication, but you can't easily interact with that. So basically, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. What I'm saying is it's very fluid and we simply don't know. But the bottom line is Putin is still determined 
and it may take some time for that to diminish. You never ramble, Paul. I won't accept that. Um, sure. There were some reports, actually, of, I mean, I don't know, again, sounded a bit, Gabriel Gatehouse, BBC journalist, who suggested that there were some Russian speakers on the uh, Ukrainian side of the border. Uh, and it is worth noting, of course, that uh, Russophone speakers are the ones being most heavily bombarded by Russian forces because they're in the east rather than the west, which is so far being spared the full brunt of Russian military power. But apparently that they have relatives across the border in Russia who, are, when they're speaking to them about being bombed by the Russian army, saying you're not being bombed by the Russian army, you're being bombed by your own government. And just I suppose it shows the power and wartime of 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 propaganda. Yes. The first casualty, yes, yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, yeah. last week, I mean, you, Ukraine, we had Ukrainian social scientist Volodymyr Shenko last week, and I suppose you know, it goes back to the first question I put to you, really, which is, you know, how badly is this going for Russia? And, and, and he had a kind of bleak assessment because, I mean, the point he made is this is existential for Putin, he can't actually afford to lose this war, and actually, at the end of the day, he could just turn up the level of brutality that that he's willing to unleash on Ukraine. I mean, is that basically when all is said and done, the problem that actually they can just by force of numbers and superior air power and superior weaponry and the amount of brutality they're prepared to unleash, they can achieve at least some war aims? They could do, um, not by force of numbers, because I don't think they have the troop capability to do it, almost fighting from house to house in every city. But I'm afraid in terms of firepower, um, air power, artillery, missiles and the rest, they still have a great deal of capability. Um, yes, I'm afraid one has to accept that. I was just, just making the point a couple of minutes ago that for Putin, yes, as he was saying, this is existential. Um, for Putin and the people around him. But the point is, this is so much fixated on Putin that you may also see, and there are some signs of this, that some of the people around him, even though he, even his long-term associates over 20, 25 years, there are some indications of differences appearing there. Um, this is where I think he could become rather more vulnerable. But it would take a heck of a lot because he basically is, is a very determined person. And because he's been in power for 22 years, he had a lot of influence beforehand in the last two or three years of Yeltsin. Then, you know, going back to Lord Axon, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is why I think we're in such a dangerous circumstance. And why, if and how the world gets through this, there's got to be some huge rethinking about what we mean by security. And there's some, some very good work already going on on that. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. If anybody is interested in that, I would certainly go to the Rethinking Security Group, rethinkingsecurity.org. There's an extremely good blog 
by the coordinator, Richard Reeve, looking longer term at what we have to do. And I think it's the best thing written so far. Rethinkingsecurity.org. Check it out. And before I, in fact, I was going to ask a last question about that before we do. Um, I mean, this isn't, a, I'm not saying this to cast moral judgments on the righteousness of these wars, just to be clear. But looking as you, I mean, as an expert on, on conflict throughout history, is it possible, do you think, to demarcate between what could be considered rational wars, I'm not saying just wars, but wars which are at least rational in some way? They have some sort of rational war aim. They have some sort of rational chance of succeeding and an irrational war. I mean, because this strikes me as, you know, if we look at what Putin did in Georgia or Crimea, might not like it and might think what, what he did was bad or Syria he he did so knowing he could achieve those war ends, and he, he did. This just seems exceptionally irrational on its own terms, and that's why I think a lot of people are baffled and didn't think he'd actually invade, because it seemed like such an irrational thing to do. How do you explain the rationality of this, if, if you like? I would say that it may be irrational to other people, but it is not irrational to Putin. That partly stems from the fact that the other conflicts he's been involved with have had at least more than partial success. So in some ways, that, in a way, lulled him into the view that he could carry on because he's developed this whole idea of a renewed... It's not a renewed Soviet Union. It's almost a renewed Tsarist empire. And one certainly thinks that maybe he sees himself in that particular role. So I, I don't think you can put it down to irrationality. From his point of view, as of two and a half weeks ago, he thought, and the people around him thought, this was a rational thing to do. It may not be rational to everybody else, but it certainly was to him. And one has to say that, you know, there are other states that would still back him, even though probably less now than they did. But we have to really think this through in, in a way. I mean, really, we have to go back to square one in many ways. And so in some ways, I think that, you know, where somebody said, this is the biggest thing since 9-11, in its own way, I think it's all about the way the new world order has become a new world disorder. And we have to rescue that back to what we were hoping at the end of the Cold War. And that's my last question, really. I mean, I suppose, you know, a kind of bleak analysis would be that we're now going to enter a era of not just disorder, but militarism, ever increasing spending on the military, any attempts on either side to call for, you know, voices for peace are going to find themselves pretty squeezed out, I would say, and, um, and delegitimized. I mean, what do you think in terms of this new order uh, that beckons, what, what will it look like? And will it be a kind of very heavily militarized new world order? In the short term, it may be. In the long term, it cannot be. I say cannot be because we're forgetting all the time that the real security threat for the world at present actually has nothing to do with the military. It's all to do with climate breakdown. And that is that is accelerating. And within the next four or five years, we're going to see more and more effects of that. And because of all the good work being done to suggest a ways to avoid that, which have nothing to do with the military by and large, I think basically sense should prevail in the long term. It's going to be a very rough period the next three or four years but, uh, you know, you, you have to keep the faith. Um, I've worked in this field now for over 40 years, and you only really have three alternatives, three choices at the end. You're either suicidal or alcoholic or optimistic. I'm still optimistic. 
I'll try not to optimism. Well, that's that's a positive note to end in an exceptionally bleak time in which we live. Paul, it's always an honour to to have you. Just everyone, just Google Paul Rogers, get his box, follow him on Twitter, read his articles, Open Democracy, The Guardian as well, his article uh, this week. Uh, absolutely fantastic article. Uh, brilliant stuff as ever. We're very honoured always to have you, Paul. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me anyway. Take care, Paul. Take care. Brilliant stuff. Always an honour to have Paul and his brilliant analysis. Um, now we're going to bring in the brilliant investigative journalist and political journalist, one of the best political journalists in the country, for my money, Adam Bienkov, uh, who is at Byline. And also, do you look up his Substack and support that? Because he does some brilliant articles there, including this one here, the Johnson Lebedev Letters, a back channel to Vladimir Putin. Letters exclusively obtained uh, by Byline Times, so this was in Byline Times, between Boris Johnson and Evgeny Lebedev shed new light on how the son of a Russian oligarch and former KGB officer built such a close relationship with Britain's Prime Minister. Brilliant stuff, Adam. I should say, I mean, I, um, I just put it on the table. I went for dinner with, yeah, I don't know, if, am I breaking etiquette? Oh, I, mean, I never buy by <laughs> With Evgeny Lebedev. I think it was in 2011, because mm. I, I used to be a columnist at The Independent. That's um, right. And obviously, he owns the independent. He's own, he owns the independent. Mm. Um, yeah, it was very odd. It was very odd. It was him, Amal Rajan, who ended up being editor of the independent, but now is media editor. The guy, uh, sorry, the, the guy. Uh, yeah. BBC, BBC. Uh, yeah, very odd, very odd experience. He was very, um, quite an aloof character, I thought. Tell us about Evgeny Lebedev, because some people might go, come on now, this is just Russophobia. Just because he's a big, rich Russian doesn't mean he's dodgy. So just tell us yes. about the new character. Well, initially, uh, even in Lebedev, he, he's the son of the Russian oligarch um, Alexander Lebedev. Um, he, he was initially sort of a little-known figure and lived in the sort of shadow of his father. Bit of a party boy in London. Um, spent much of his time going to parties, didn't really have much of achievements to his name. But then he bought the Evening Standard and the Independent for one pound each, um, both papers struggling at the time. And this immediately sort of brought him in, into uh, a place of, of, of much larger power and significance in the, in the British establishment. Immediately having done so, he immediately became within the circle of Boris Johnson, who at the time was Mayor of London. And of course, the Evening Standard at the time had a huge influence in London and had a huge influence over the success of the Mayor of London, had supported Boris Johnson under its previous owners and, and continued to and continues to support Boris Johnson under Lebedev. And so and these letters that I, I obtained through Freedom of Information and, and diaries and, and minutes from meetings show how, what they effectively do is they show the kind of nuts and bolts of how somebody like Evgeny Lebedev uh, buys influence over a politician. And, it, and when it comes to the Conservative Party, there are sort of a couple of ways that you can do that. You can either directly fund the Conservative Party, and we know in recent months there's been lots of stories about Russian uh, donors and donors linked to uh, Moscow and to the, the Kremlin who, who have bought influence um, over the Conservative Party. Some, somebody like Lubov Chernukin, the wife of uh, Putin's former finance minister, who spent hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, to have games of tennis with David Cameron and Boris Johnson and, and to fund the party. That's one way of buying influence. The other way, which is what the Lebedevs have done, is not actually directly fund the Conservative Party. The Lebedevs are not at all donated to the Conservative Party, but to buy that influence. And they bought that influence through 
buying the Evening Standard and buying uh, the Independent. And these letters show how immediately after having bought the Independent, Boris Johnson reached out to Libidev and sort of they met for lunch and they discussed his uh, programme for government. And Johnson said that he would be you know, very excited to have the support of Lebedev and set out the things that he wanted to do. And they sort of show the nuts and bolts of how that influence is, is was bought by Lebedev. Uh, Boris Johnson wanted funding and support for one of his Russian, for his Russian cultural festival in London. Lebedev as well wanted funding and support from Boris Johnson for his own arts festival in London. Um, Johnson did, refused to, to, to give any funding for that, but he, he did hold meetings in City Hall. And Lebedev said that, you know, if Johnson couldn't fund it, then he would he would be able to to reach out to the Russian government to get funding for it. Um, so it, it it shows how that 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 relationship is built between somebody like, like Lebedev. And throughout this time, uh, it's worth saying that Boris Johnson was probably the most pro oligarch politician in Britain. I mean, when he was mayor of London, he gave a, you, I mean, you had your guest Tom Burgess on earlier talking about, you know, and he obviously had his own brush with the legal system and, and Russia. Um, well, Boris Johnson, when he was mayor of London, he he gave a speech in which he, to the CBI, in which he actively encouraged Russian oligarchs to come over and use the London legal system. Um, he also wrote a piece um, in which he said that uh, the richest people in the country, including oligarchs, should be given automatic period, uh, automatic knighthoods. Well, you know, Lebedev wasn't given a knighthood, but he was given the next best thing, which is a peerage in the House of Lords. And we also know that Johnson gave him that peerage, despite the fact that the um, MI5 and MI6 had, had advised the House of Lords Appointment Commission that Lebedev was a security risk. So th- th- these letters kind of sort of put this whole picture together about exactly how this relationship was built, and also how Lebedev potentially influenced Boris Johnson on his own views on Russia. Uh, if you look through some of, I mean, uh, in the last week or so, Lebedev has sought to distance himself from the war and he's called on Putin to, to pull out of Ukraine and, you know, denied having any sort of pro sort of Putin leanings. But if you go back and look through what he, he wrote while he was at the Independent, look at some of his tweets, um, a lot of what he wrote was actually, you know, pretty similar to what Putin is saying now about Ukraine. Um, he was justifying the invasion of Crimea. Uh, and some of his pieces were quite similar to ones which very quickly came out from Boris Johnson in the Telegraph. So there is that. So you can see how this this relationship is built and how this influence was was bought by 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 both even Lebedev and his father. Um, yeah, I mean it's fascinating because the report suggests that Yevgeny Lebedev boasted of having an inside track with the Kremlin. That's right, and also. Yes. Somewhat baffled. I mean, he wanted to be. He actually wanted to be made Lord Lebedev of Moscow, uh, which, which I thought was quite <laughs> quite funny to be honest. Which, but I mean, yes. he's not because some would say, you know, just because he's. I mean, it's interesting because what happened with Putinism and the oligarchs is there. The deal was they wouldn't have the same political powers they had under Yeltsin, but they would maintain all their economic power and all the assets they'd looted mm-hmm. and stole from the Russian people after the collapse of the Soviet bloc. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, do you think that's what the security? I mean, we don't know do we necessarily what they were raising with the security concerns. But the fact he said no. he had an inside track with Moscow is a bit like because Evgeny Lebedev. The other thing is he's so so well connected, and actually a lot of what the Evening Standard used to splash was just like pictures of Lebedev with all these like the great and the good, like actors and you know famous you know just celebrities. Yep. It was almost like look at how well you know because they seem to want the newspapers. Um, as a kind of 
to show their, you know, to, to get access essentially to the British establishment. Yes. And uh, what we know from Alexander Lebedev has also, according to reporting by Tortoise, boasted of his own access to uh, Putin and offered to act as a back channel for Boris Johnson after the um, attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal. Um, so, yes, I mean, look, I think the, 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 the trick that Boris Johnson is doing here when he's responded to this is to accuse anyone questioning this relationship uh, to say that it's Russophobia. And of course, we know that Boris Johnson has spent a career making racist and Islamophobic comments about people in, in his writings and, and in person. <laughs> and suddenly the only time that he's concerned about issues of xenophobia is, is when it affect, directly affects him and, and some of his very wealthy friends. So I think we can take that with a pinch. And actually, this isn't about prejudice against Russian people. As we know from your earlier guest, you know, uh, the people who have most suffered from oligarchy are the are the Russian people themselves who have had the wealth of their country stolen from them. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's interesting with Johnson himself, because in terms of the articles he's written, I mean, he basically, when Russia was unleashing hell in Syria, suggested that Britain should actually ally with Putin, that it should support Putin. Um, I mean, at the time... Which he wrote one month after Evgeny Lebedev wrote a remarkably similar article in the independent it was about three weeks after that he wrote that incredibly similar article um and we know that they were very close you know they're the, looking at the mayor's diaries they were meeting frequently for dinners lunches parties and of course i mean the first time i i became aware of how close their relationship was was when i was covering city hall in uh, 2012 and i stumbled across uh, the gibson hospitality register of boris johnson and it revealed that he had been flown out to uh lebedev's italian palace uh, for this party, and that became a sort of regular annual event, even when he became foreign secretary. And of course, we also know when he was foreign secretary, um, he was flown out and he actually ditched his security officers and was seen stumbling through. The clearly, clearly yeah. got absolutely smashed. And yes. was like very, very obviously exceptionally hungover from party with Lebedev. But there have been these, these questions about security. So, uh, security concerns about Boris Johnson. We know that when Boris Johnson was Foreign Secretary, Theresa May withheld uh, confidential information from him because they were worried that he was a security risk. Now, there are some people who suggest he's a security risk because, you know, he's in, in the pay of Russia or whatever. I, I don't actually think that's that's likely to be the case. I think it's more the fact that he's just completely reckless. Uh, we know that he, he held uh, the same phone number for 15 years, despite it being available online for anyone to find. Uh, we know that he left. I got it. I messaged. He yes. left me on red. He left me on red. I got the TP ticks. I got. Yeah. Sl- I got ghosted by Boris Johnson. <laughs> I tried. Have- before we go five minutes, I was like, "Can I interview you? I'm going to be at Tory conference, Boris." He didn't reply. Anyway. And, um, you know, leaving confidential papers around Downing Street when he was holding parties, that was reported last year. So it's a whole sort of series. I think it's... it's Allegedly, by the way, with some of Carrie's mates who apparently indeed. some would say might be some journalists who we could just yes. scurry around and just see so, these confidential papers. Exactly. So I, th- I think there are, I think the security risk is probably more likely to come from his own recklessness and selfishness than it is to, because he's directly in, in the pay of Moscow. But it doesn't mean that it's not a risk. It doesn't mean that he's not posing a threat. And I think there, there does need to be an investigation into exactly what his relationship is with Lebedev, what favours he has done. Because, I mean, we've I've, I've uncovered these letters, but it's only really sort of at the tip of the iceberg of what, what their relationship is, um, how he was able to get this peerage despite the fact that MI5 and MI6 advised against it. There does need to be a full investigation into this. 
Um, of course, of course, that's very unlikely to happen, given the fact that Boris Johnson is the prime minister and is in control of whether or not such an investigation does take place. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying this is the case, but if I was a security agency who relied on using Compromat to incriminate and blackmail people, Boris Johnson would be like top of the list. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. But I'm not saying to avoid any legal issues that that has happened there's no evidence for it um just finally what do you think will happen with Lebedev then because obviously we saw I mean we see what happened I mean with Roman Abramovich who I say is, is a far more clear-cut case because he clearly has a relationship a direct relationship with yes. the Putin regime which is why the government belatedly took action which has obviously riled a lot of Chelsea fans um what do you, I mean what how do you think this will play out with Lebedev um well I think you're right I think I think the Lebedev's relationship with Putin and Moscow isn't entirely clear. We do know that he has mirrored some of the views of, of, of Putin and Russia, even even quite recently. Um, but we do know that the oligarchs are only able to keep their money and to leave the country if they are of some use to Putin. Um, so we can only assume that Lebedev's are of some use, uh, either tacitly or, or otherwise, for for Moscow. Um, in terms of what it means for Lebedev and his sort of, uh, yeah, I, I imagine, uh, not, not a huge deal. I, I doubt we'll be seeing the same kind of parties that we have seen, these annual Christmas parties in which the great and the good uh, turn up, including some Labour politicians, it has to be said. You know, Sadiq Khan has, has attended these. Uh, Peter Manderson, of course, has attended these. Who has his own has he? Peter Manderson? <laughs> No, Looking what's he doing there? <laughs> he's normally got, he's really, really careful about his associations, Peter Manderson. Famously but, but, so, but I mean this this is this this whole episode I think does highlight how there has been this cozy relationship between very powerful powerful oligarchs, be they be they from Russia or anywhere else, um, and senior senior figures in politics and and showbiz etc. And this has sort of been out in the open. It's sort of been an open secret really, and it's only now becoming an issue because of what's happened in Ukraine. But of course, it should have been an issue before, and people should have been thinking or talking about it a lot earlier than they have done. Brilliant stuff is Adam. Honestly, it's always such an honour to have you on. Uh, as I said, a really superb political journalist, fiercely independent. Uh, and we're not all political journalists are. Uh, so do look up Adam's work do on Twitter, obviously, and on Byline and on Substack. Um, it's always brilliantly researched and thorough and just great analysis. So cheers, Adam. Really, really great Thanks to have so. you on. All right. See you soon, buddy. Take care of yourself. Yes, see you soon. Great stuff, uh, again. And we're very lucky as well now to have another fantastic guest joining us. Just just to put this in context before I bring her in. You may have heard about the mass execution which took place in Saudi Arabia. 81 men killed by Saudi Arabia. Now, the Saudi regime is one of the most brutal and oppressive regimes on the face of the earth. Uh, it is a regime which decapitates people who are dissidents, who are gay, brutalizes women, uh, in which there is no form of democracy in any meaningful way, uh, in which obviously independent political parties, trade unions are forbidden, uh, in which extremism is exported with catastrophic consequences and a menace to everyone watching or listening to this, uh, which is carpet bombing Yemen. Uh, I mean, we're talking rightly about Putin's murderous regime, uh, murderous invasion of Ukraine. Uh, in Yemen, we've seen terrible atrocities, uh, including dropped by British and American bomb. Uh, sorry, American British bombs dropped by the Saudi-led 
coalition. I've been to a Yemeni refugee camp. I've met Yemeni children who drew pictures of their relatives lying in blood with demolished houses. These are like nine, 10 year old kids drawing what they see. Most nine year olds and 10 year olds draw pictures of animals and you know people on swings. They, they're not drawing that. Um, hugely traumatized children. One of the shocking things I've ever experienced in my life. Um, and the reason it's so important we talk about this is obviously we've seen as mass execution and we shouldn't forget the other atrocities taking place, although it is important to talk about Ukraine. And um, But the, this becomes even more relevant, doesn't it? Because what the British government and the American governments are doing is trying to go cap in hand now to the Saudi regime. Apparently, though, the Saudis snubbed Joe Biden. Uh, but Boris Johnson is... Uh, going to head to Saudi Arabia. Let's bring in the brilliant Jeed Bassouni uh, from the fantastic NGO Reprieve. And do we'll, we'll talk about Reprieve a bit as well. Jeed, thanks uh, so much for joining us. Honestly, it's, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Ellen. Thanks for having me. Just tell us, just tell us first about these executions. What, what? Just tell us a bit about these executions. What, what were they? Was this? Did it come out of nowhere? What was the? You know, who were the sorts of people they 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 executed? Yeah, so thanks for having me, Owen. Um, this is the largest mass execution in Saudi Arabia's history. I mean, the scale is is shocking. I mean, for context, Saudi Arabia's last mass execution was in 2019, when they killed 37 people. Um, in 2016, there was a mass execution of 47 people. So the scale of this is huge. 81 people killed in one day. Um, and we've been looking into some of the cases as to the people who were killed yesterday. Um, and one of the most shocking things to us is that our um, Reprieve's partner organization, ESOHR, they collect data of people at risk of the death penalty. Um, and most of these people were unknown to them. The majority of the people executed yesterday were not known to our partner, which indicates that most of them were tried in secret, convicted in secret, and executed in complete secrecy. So there's a huge lack of transparency in what Saudi Arabia is actually doing. Um, but yesterday, they very proudly released all 81 names um, on their Arabic website, the Saudi press agency website. Um, so we've been going through them, and it would seem that the majority of the people killed yesterday were killed for non-lethal offenses. Um, so these would be protests related or, you know, challenging the status quo, having a different opinion to, to the Saudi regime. You know, there's a case of a young man, um, Aqil al-Faraj, who was executed yesterday. Um, from coming from a family that, you know, it's a big dissenting family in Saudi Arabia who um, challenged the government's line on certain things and demand more freedoms. Um, he was brutally tortured, forced into confessing to crimes he hadn't committed. Um, he was held for five years before he was even tried. And then yesterday he was executed. So that's that's the kind of thing we're talking about. So I think it's really striking that uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was portrayed as a great reformer, that he was going to change and modernise Saudi Arabia. He did various cosmetic things, which seemed to be enough for those cheerleaders of what I should say again is a vicious, brutal dictatorship. Yeah. What does this tell us about what was that narrative about Mohammed bin Salman, which persisted for so long, even as Yemen was carpet bombed, as a journalist was chopped to pieces in a foreign embassy, as all these terrible other mass executions took place. What does it tell us about the narrative? I mean, it tells us that he's very good at telling Western governments what they want to hear about reform and this young man who's coming to change everything and making, as you say, you know, very, very basic changes um, and then being widely celebrated for them when, in fact, 
we're looking at a hugely repressive government. I mean, less than two weeks ago, he gave an interview to The Atlantic magazine where he talked about, you know, reforming the Saudi justice system and limiting the use of the death penalty. And less than two weeks later, he's, you know, ordered the execution of 81 people. So I think we consistently at Reprieve, we see this huge gap between what Saudi Arabia say they're going to do. They've promised all kinds of reforms in recent years. They just don't materialize. We just don't see any benefit from the words that are being said in terms of action. It's just he seems to act with a level of impunity that goes unchallenged. Um, in terms of who is currently at risk in Saudi Arabia under this regime, who who should be, it's too late, of course, for those people who've been executed by the regime this week. Who, who Who's currently at risk that people should be making noise about? Well, I mean, as I say, death row is an unknown quantity because of the lack of transparency, but Reprieve have several clients who we are, you know, deeply, deeply concerned about. Um, so Saudi Arabia is one of the few countries left that will still execute people for crimes committed when they were under the age of 18, when they were still children. So we have a client called Abdullah al-Hawati, who was arrested when he was 14 and brutally tortured. I mean, I won't go into the details, it's very upsetting. Um, forced to confess to you know, a crime that he just he couldn't have done. There's evidence that places him 200 kilometers away from the crime he's accused of committing. And he was sentenced to death. Um, the court knew that he was a child. The court knew that he'd been tortured and he was sentenced to death. And despite his sentence being overturned last year, he was sentenced to death again last week, two weeks ago, sorry, in his retrial. Um, and subsequently he's had you know, a mental health crisis. He is now, you know, he was put in solitary confinement after he was sentenced to death again. He's gone on hunger strike and he's collapsed and been put in hospital. His mother's been unable to access him. And we're really worried. He is at risk of execution. So we are, we're worried about him. We're worried about people on death row for, you know, non-lethal offenses who are accused of, you know, smuggling drugs, even though, again, they were tortured into confession. There's no real evidence against them. Reprieve has a client called Hussein Abul Khair, who um, is accused of smuggling um, drugs into Saudi Arabia, even though he was tortured for 12 days and forced to confess to it. Um, he, his health is deteriorating in prison as he awaits execution. He's going blind in his prison cell. We're really concerned about his well-being. Um, and then there are people that haven't been sentenced yet. So there's a scholar, um, Hassan al-Malki, who the public prosecutor is calling for him to be executed. His trial is ongoing. And his only crime is, you know, owning books that the Saudi government doesn't approve of, of pushing forward ideas that challenge the type of um, Islam that's implemented by the Saudi government, calling for a more inclusive society. And for that, the government, you know, the public prosecutor, excuse me, are calling for his execution. So we're really, really concerned about these people. And we're concerned that the UK prime minister is, as you say, about to visit Saudi Arabia and go and shake the hand of Mohammed bin Salman, this man who's just ordered all these executions and who seems to be happy to oversee the execution of children and, you know, people being persecuted for thought crimes. Um, and it's just unthinkable that he's going to go and do this. Um, it's really shocking to us that this could happen. And we would, I mean, we would call for him to to cancel his trip immediately and to condemn these executions. Just a couple of final things. I mean, just just quickly on that. I mean, this is linked to what's happening in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine because there is obviously a discussion about reliance on Russian energy. There's also a solution to that, which is, for example, massively expanding renewable energy. Mm. But obviously, Western governments are looking at going cap in hands to the likes of Saudi Arabia as it engages in mass executions of the sort yeah. that we saw this week. So, I mean, what's, is, isn't that the concern that because the, the response to a brutal autocrat unleashing a war of aggression against Ukraine 
is to become more dependent on other brutal autocrats themselves complicit in mass death. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's trying to solve one problem by ignoring another huge glaring problem, just kicking it further down the road. And I mean, this will, you know, as all your guests were saying previously, Putin, you know, his crimes were ignored for long enough and now look what's happened. So, you know, you can try and postpone dealing with these things and rewarding it, which seemingly the British government is about to do by going to pay Mohammed bin Salman a visit and buy some oil off of him. Or we can confront it now and we can say what is and isn't acceptable, that human rights are universal and it's not one rule for a certain part of the world and another rule for a certain part of, you know, the world. As you say, it's not just the, you know, death penalty, there's the war in Yemen, there's a whole host of brutal things that we're just silent on that it's just shocking given the context of what's happening right now in the world. Just finally, on Reprieve itself, people might not have heard about Reprieve or Mm -hmm. know about Reprieve. Uh, So tell us about just a bit about what Reprieve does in general and how people can support Reprieve. Absolutely. So Reprieve are an organisation we've been around for over 20 years now. um, And we fight a host of government abuses. So one of the things we work on is the death penalty in the US and different parts of Africa and Asia and Middle East. So ending the use of death penalty. Um, we work on what we call extrajudicial executions, which are drone strikes, assassinations by governments, Western governments uh, mostly, in places like Yemen. Um, we work on secret prisons, so people who have been staying in Guantanamo Bay, uh, people, you know, British citizens who have been, you know, left to die in Syria. You know, we work on a host of people who, you know, government abuses have really been not brought up, you know. We just ignore these people, people who have been forgotten by the system. We try and you know bring their plight to light and show that, that as I say, it's either you, uh, human rights for everyone or human rights for no one. Um, and if you'd like to support Reprieve, you can go to our website, you can sign our petitions, you can chip in and help, uh, thank you, um, and help keep our excellent work uh, moving forward. We've put the link for those who are watching this, we've, we've put this uh, at the bottom. For those listening to the podcast, it's reprieve.org and you can put slash UK if you're British based, but do go to there and you can sign the petitions, including a petition uh, against Boris Johnson's uh, pending visit. And you can also donate to Reprieve and get involved in the various campaigns that the brilliant uh, organization that Reprieve is are engaged with. It's really great to have you, G. That was, that was really brilliant stuff. Really clearly. Thanks so much. Aaron. And uh, just thank, thank you so much for joining us. And, and lots thanks of for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Uh, Wow, we've covered a huge amount there uh, from a brilliant range of, of different guests uh, with an immense amount of expertise between them on a whole range of different aspects of the current crisis. So just to thank them all again uh, and thank to all of you who are watching this, whether you're watching live or after the show or you're listening to the podcast, we appreciate uh, all of your support. Um, what I'm going to do now is just quickly, yeah, I just want to, I just kind of think, do I mention this or not? Lassai. Yeah, I think I'll frame it like this, actually. So JK Rowling has become increasingly prolific on Twitter on a certain issue, which is uh, trans people and trans rights. And I'm not going to have a polemic about JK Rowling because I think it is distressing and disturbing that this issue, on social media at least, has become a psychodrama involving a children's author, when obviously it should be about people's lives and it was aggravating for lgbtq people in general to have jk rowling try to appoint 
to present herself as a champion of lesbian, gay and bisexual people against the supposed menace posed by the trans rights movement. And the reason I just mention this is anyone who knows trans people in Britain knows what a terrible time this is for them because of the way much of the British media talks about them on a very regular basis, the way lots of mainstream politicians talk about them, and the fact social media has become a cesspit of just a free-for-all when it comes to anti-trans rhetoric. And trans people who I know uh, said privately that they are just looking at ways of leaving the country because they feel that this country has become a hostile environment Transphobic hate crimes have gone up fourfold in the last few years. Homophobic hate crimes have gone up threefold. And I think just the point I would make about this particular issue, um, it's not, you know, completely actually relevant for the main topic because actually Vladimir Putin himself has uh, intervened on this issue, uh, engaged in overtly anti-trans and homophobic rhetoric, denouncing gender ideology as wor- and, and denouncing trans people as, as, as worse than COVID. Lovely fella. And actually at the moment, there are people in Ukraine, trans people in Ukraine who can't flee uh, the country because their, uh, the, the gender on their passport is uh, not the gender which uh, they should be accepted as. And I just, firstly, I'm just so sorry for what trans people are going through and have to keep going through at the moment, uh, having their existence just constantly discussed and debated, placed, you know, across the British media and on social media, often by just anonymous, obsessive trolls for whom transphobia has taken over their lives and they literally don't talk about anything else. Um, just reduced, you know, to just constantly put in the context of being would-be sexual predators or or threats to children, which is exactly, of course, how gay people were always uh, and often still portrayed. I think the first point I just want to make is those who are trying to separate lesbian, gay and bisexual people from trans people aren't hiding to nothing. You can't do that. And there will be. There are always members of, of any oppressed group who you can, um, who you can find who will say anything and everything. I mean, you, you, you know, you, there were gay people who opposed equal marriage. I remember that a TV show on Channel 4 had two gay people, one who supported equal marriage and one who opposed it. That was Milo Yapanopoulos, by the way, who opposed it, who was, went on to become an overt alt-right provocateur and Trumpist. Um, you know, you, you can find uh, women, well, there were women who opposed women's suffrage. There was an entire organization led by women opposed to women's right to vote. In America, the campaign on the Equal Rights Amendment, which tried to embed women's equality uh, in the US Constitution, was the, the movement against it was led by women. Phyllis Schlafly was the, uh, the figurehead of that overtly anti-women's right movement. Uh, you can find examples of anti-Semitic Jewish people. You can find, I mean, you can find literally any member of any oppressed group who you can find to say anything. So you will find lesbian, gay and bisexual people who will be very transphobic or anti-trans, but they are such a small minority. And actually, if you're lesbian, gay or bisexual, there are differences. I mean, there's a difference in experience between a lesbian and a gay man and a bisexual person for a start. 
And there's a difference between those groups. There's a difference between, I don't know, a working class black gay guy working in a supermarket and a white CEO gay owner of that supermarket. Um, There are differences, but there's a commonality. And the commonality is that lesbian, gay men and bisexuals and trans people are all oppressed and persecuted because we're all deemed to violate gender norms. That's the basis of anti-LGBTQ hostility. So for gay men, for example, the reason gay men suffer homophobia is that it's, it's, it's a... It's a, it's a secondary outcome of, of patriarchy and misogyny because it's this idea that men, the most unmanly thing a man could do is have sex with a man. That's the most degrading, unmanly thing you can do. That's the basis of it. It's like you've become like a woman and that is the most degrading thing a man can be, as an example. Um, so it's all very interlinked on that basis, that commonality of experience. As I've said, the same tropes directed against trans people were always directed against gay people. Um, and bisexual people, which is being would be sexual predators, uh, threats to children, uh, defying the laws of biology. God made Adam and Eve; he didn't make Adam and Steve. Uh, why should the majority have to redefine themselves for a small minority? Um, you know, they've got more rights than us these days. <laughs> that was a classic. Uh, it's a mental illness. Uh, homosexuality was only removed as a mental illness by the World Health Organization in the early nineteen nineties. <laughs> um, that is a fetish. I mean, we could go on. I mean, it's just the same the same songs played over and over again. And, you know, I mean, I find it, you know, you know, I'm violent out because of people who've had followers than me and I've been beaten up, gay bashed by a Nazi on my birthday. He served a nearly a three-year prison sentence. The judge found it's because, in part, my views expressed on LGBTQ issues. I've no doubt that the surge in homophobic hate crimes are linked to the anti-trans atmosphere that's being woven. Uh, in this country by media outlets and the like. And I just think, firstly, it's important to say to trans people out there that you are loved and accepted for who you are by millions of people, that most people are not obsessed with your existence, that there are people who've clearly been radicalised on the internet and gone down so many rabbit holes, they've just lost any sense of perspective. And this is their all-consuming obsession uh, when there's so many so many things in the world to be angry about and genuinely legitimately worried about and the existence of trans people who just want to get on with their lives and live happy comfortable lives like everybody else it's not it's it's just not one of them (laughs) you know um so i just wanted to make that point because i just you know you see on twitter here we go again it's a psychodrama now it's you know jk rowling's trending rowling's trending again you know, and and then you just you know that every single person who's obsessed with trans people jump you know in a negative way just jumps on in on Twitter and it just becomes a mess. And I just think it's important that just to make that point that you know you can't separate lesbian, gay, and bisexual people and trans people, despite the efforts of some to do that. Um, not least straight celebrities using social media to try and suggest there's a conflict within yeah you know, to try and stir up a conflict within LGBTQ people i I find that just quite nauseating you know imagine using your platform to try and stir up conflict amongst the minority which is suffering growing hate crimes against it i just not not the best use of energy and time is it really but that's that's all i wanted to say because i said it shouldn't be the psychodrama it should it should be about the lived experience of lgbtq people 
and I would say just finally on that, that LGBTQ people have suffered um, huge oppression over the years from a variety of different people, but a lot of that has been overcome because actually uh, we're a resilient minority um, and we will stand together uh, with our trans siblings and with everybody else in the LGBTQ rainbow. And just finally, again, transphobia is an evil on its own terms, but it is clearly ricocheting. My social media now is just full of anti-trans extremists screaming at me for being, uh, you know, suggesting I'm a paedophile and uh, that, uh, you know, just all the just overtly classic, the old kind of homophobic uh, tunes, uh, talking about gay men in just degrading ways. Um, you know, there was one, I mean, this is just, doing my nutting there's a journalist i won't name it i won't name him because he's been piled on a weekend he's a gay man who co-parents with two lesbians just to put that just to explain what that means because people some of you might not know what that means co-parenting so co-parenting is when in this particular context when you get uh gay men and lesbians who want to have children of their own who come up with an arrangement where the man obviously provides the sperm and then they raise a child together, though in separate homes. Uh, so they just raise, they divide up the week or whatever. They divide up the time between uh, between them to raise a child. Now, we made, made the mistake of uh, recommending this to me, and we talked on Twitter about this, um, and got absolutely piled on by these anti-trans extremists who were like, this is misogyny. And they were trying to, they obviously didn't know what co-parenting was. They were talking about surrogacy. I mean, whatever you think about surrogacy, co-parenting isn't surrogacy. Co-parenting is just men and women coming up with an arrangement to have kids like like anybody else. Um, and they just won't let this go. And the only conclusion you can come to is they just don't want gay people to be parents because there's no other, other objection to co-parenting. What's the objection to co-parenting? No, one, no one's being oppressed in that context. Um, but, you know... That's where it got to, and they've all piled on him and piled on me for having engaged with this, you know, this loving dad with a loving family, and everybody who knows that family knows just like a beautiful, loving family. It is depressing and grim. It's a grim time, isn't it? Just wanted to end with that because, you know, it's it's um, it's being talked about uh, on social media, and I'm an LGBTQ person, so I might as well obviously occasionally talk about LGBTQ issues. Cool. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's been an honour as ever. I hope you're all doing well. And we've got lots of interviews coming. Uh, and the show next Sunday, again, we'll be back at a normal time at 12 o'clock, I think. Uh, but thanks, everyone, for joining us. Hope you're well. Look after yourself. Oh, sorry, if you're watching live, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, press the like button. It helps with the algorithm. Press subscribe. Support us on patreon.com forward slash mjoz84. Thanks to Tad Campbell, David Barata, and Rachel Atwood for your support. Um, and also listen to us on the podcast. Sorry, the Wi-Fi has been a bit dodged. Don't know what's going on there, to be honest with you. Uh, but I'll see you very soon. Lots of love. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84 leave us some stars that'd be nice spread the word and I look forward to speaking to you soon tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.